Would you please stand as Becca reads God's word today? From 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's the word of God. You may be seated. I don't know if you've noticed, but hopefully you did. We are towards the end of 1 John. I'm kind of sad to be leaving God's word here in this book. We'll go on to another one of God's of God's word in a different book. But I'm kind of sad because um, there's so much in this that gets overlooked. I want to remind you as we are as we are in the last couple sections here in John of what John has already spoken here, what God, what John has already written through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, Two weeks ago, I preached on the ending of, on the ending of verse five. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God? These are verses that get taken out of context. What John doesn't mean here is simply an agreement with the statement, Jesus is the Son of God. I think there are times in church history where they were satisfied with that. They're like, okay, we're converting the heathen as long as they say these words. They can still worship their gods, but as long as they say Jesus is the Son of God. But that's not what John is saying either. It's not just an agreement with your mouth, but with everything about you that Jesus truly is the Son of God. That is the person who overcomes. John, this whole book has really been about a a, a testing of spirits, a testing of of accusations, of of, uh, statements that people make. Somebody says, I love God. John would say, do you love your brother? Do you love your brother in Christ? They're like, no, I hate the church, but I love God. He's like, no, you don't. How can you say you love your God who you've not seen, but hate your brother whom you have seen? Other people will say, oh, no, God told me this. And John will say, not every spirit is the Holy Spirit. Test the spirits to make sure that they are the Holy Spirits. John gives uh, three, three proofs of a genuine Christian. One, they believe the right things about Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Two, they act in righteous ways. A person who is righteous acts righteously. It's not about perfection, but direction. Third, they love. They love. They fulfill the commandment of Christ to love one another. In John's day and in ours, there are many who make claims that they speak for God. They say they have visions, they have dreams, that God tells them these things. But how do you know? How do you know that what they're saying is from God? John would say, not everybody who says that they have a word from God really has a word from God. In fact, he says a lot of times it's the Antichrist. 
In John's day, there's these people who are saying, yeah, I had a vision from God, and God is saying that Jesus isn't fully God, that the Christ Spirit came upon him. And then he became the Son of God at his baptism, for instance. John's like, that is not the testimony we heard. That is a different testimony. It's a different gospel. And in Paul's, in Paul's um, letter to the Galatians, he said, let them be eternally condemned for it. Not every spirit is the Holy Spirit. Some spirits are antichrist. When we think of the word antichrist, we think of the person of antichrist. And of course, John recognizes that, that there will be an antichrist. But already, there are many antichrists. And many antichrists, you know what Christ means? It means the anointed one. Anti is not just against, but it's also rival of. There are many spirits that want to be seen as the anointed one. But there is only one who is the anointed one. No wonder those who twist scripture want to twist the scripture that says, do not touch the Lord's anointed. They try to use it as a shield against those who might actually take their their claims in the light of scripture. And people who will try to do this, they will say, do not touch the Lord's anointed, that what they're saying is biblical because they find a proof text. They find an individual verse that they take out of context to an agreement with what they're talking about. You know, that's what the devil himself did when he was tempting Jesus Christ. No, we understand scripture throughout all of it, and we look for anything that might contradict, not things that support the supposed word that is given. This part in John's letter here, he is talking about whose testimony do you believe? Whose testimony do you believe? The sermon in the last days, Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 24, 24, that there will arise in the last day false Christs and false prophets. He even says that they will perform great signs and wonders and will deceive many, and if possible, even the elect. That's wild, isn't it? Because there are people who say, well, look at the fruit of my ministry. People are getting healed. Jesus said in the last, the last days, false Christ, false prophets, they will perform signs and wonders. Twisting the, the assurance that God gives Christians that the gospel coming forth was from him with signs and wonders. But in the last days, false Christ will use signs and wonders to try to legitimate, legitimate their false claims. This was the reality John was living in. It's the reality we live in. There are people who will say, even today, look at these signs and wonders. And you better not actually be any kind of skepticism about it or judge it by God's word because you're touching the Lord's anointed. No, you're not. You are being a good Berean to see, to search the scriptures to see if what is being said is so. Too bad so many churches think discernment is, is voluntary. No, discernment is mandatory. As your pastor, it's not voluntary. I mean, I can make sure I never offend anybody here uh, by never criticizing, never actually judging by God's word any uh, teachings or practices, but I wouldn't be a very good shepherd. A shepherd who makes friends with the wolf hates the sheep. The vast majority of the New Testament is fighting against false teaching. So if you ever hear anybody try to make it seem like, no, if you're a good Christian, um, you'll never actually call out false teaching or false teachers. You know, the 11th commandment, do not name names. It's in direct contradiction to most of the New Testament. In John's day, there are people who are saying that they had visions and dreams of the Lord, and the Lord was telling them things, things that went against the teachings Jesus of Jesus Christ that John personally heard and that others heard as well. When we talk about people's testimonies, we hear about people making claims. You ever have somebody, they're lying to you, and you call them on it, and they say, are you calling me a liar? 
that's a nice little shield when somebody's lying to you. Because what they're saying is like, they want you to put your money where your mouth is. And we're afraid to call people a liar because we know if I call you a liar, I might be destroying this friendship, even though you're the one destroying the friendship because you're lying to me. But it's a nice one. We get really intimidated by it. And we try to try to backtrack and we're like, it's just strange credulity that you're saying this, or and it really doesn't seem to match up with this. I remember in the TV show Seinfeld, um, Elaine, the, the gal in there, she's lying to Jerry, and Jerry is calling her out on it, and she's like, are you calling me a liar? He's like, I don't know. Are you a liar? We get worried, right, when people start saying these things, even if they're lying to us. You know, we talk, we talk about gaslighting today. When somebody knows they're lying to us, but they, 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 they don't want us to call them out for lying. I remember um, one of the youth groups I was um, leading. Now, it's not one you guys know about. It's not here. It's not Dubuque. You don't know about it. Um, we were getting ready for camp, and I remember the kids were saying, don't have this one lady as one of our chaperones. And I'm like, what, really? She seems fine. And they're like, no, she called so-and-so a liar. And I'm like, oh, that's bad. I was like, well, tell me about it. And they start telling me about the situation. I was like, it sounds to me like she's lying, therefore a liar. And they're like, yeah, but she shouldn't have said that. How weird it is. We're more comfortable with the lies than actually calling out the lies. And we're so worried because we're worried about the opinion of man, the opinion of a person and that. So then why in the world would people call God a liar? It's like there's no fear of God at all. And we have way more of a fear of man. John says, now I know I'm in my introduction here, but I'm going to start preaching from the word already here. Verse 10. Whoever believes, believes in the Son of God has the testimony in, him, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Now, specifically, John is talking about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, but that goes with everything in his word. Everything in his word. Somebody says, I don't care what the Bible says. Let me tell you what God is like. They are saying, God is a liar. Let me tell you. And people have no worry about these things. It's because they have no fear of God. They would rather rely on the testimony of man than of God. As John wraps up this letter, he wants to remind them that where this testimony comes from. Earlier, he talked about that they were eyewitnesses of the gospel. Now, he gets to the very heart of it. You might disagree with his version of events or whatever, but he says there are three who testify, and their testimony is true. And the testimony comes from God himself. He gets to the very heart of it. This testimony isn't a testimony of man, but the testimony of God. Throughout the Old Testament, in order to establish any matter, you would have the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is why in this scripture portion right here, he talks about three witnesses. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus is instructing the disciples on church discipline. And he tells them, you've heard this verse taken out of context many times, but here it is. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am and among you. This is not a verse that actually is talking about how do we have a church? We only have to gather two or three of us together. It's talking about church discipline. Jesus goes through the steps of church discipline. And this is the end of that. Two or three. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In 2 Corinthians 13, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. John is saying, here are your three witnesses. You will accept human testimony of two or three witnesses. Here are three heavenly testimonies. It is the spirit, the water, and the blood. Before I, um, before I get into those three testimonies here, 
I want to talk about sola scriptura. Excuse me, hopefully you didn't hear me drink water there. I'm trying to be better with that. I know I can't stand the sound of people drinking water. During October 2021, I preached a series on the five solas of the Reformation. The first one being sola scriptura, or by scripture alone. Scripture alone is the law of faith and practice. It's not our feelings, dreams, or vision. Charismatic gifts point to the scripture, encourages them in the scripture, but it is the scripture alone that are standard of faith and practice. The scripture was written by the Holy Spirit. Wolves and charlatans, they try to pit the two to get against each other. That the spirit is somehow in conflict with the word of God. Or the word of God is stale, but hearing from the Lord, that is somehow active. No, the Holy Spirit wrote the scripture. When you are reading the scripture, you are hearing the very words of God. God used individuals to write his scripture, but it is his scripture. You can't pit the spirit against the word. The spirit wrote the word. He doesn't contradict himself. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 tells us that no prophecy of scripture comes from human effort, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is where we find the testimony of the blood, the water, and the spirit who carried along men to write the scripture. There's a popular phrase I know. Facts don't care about your feelings, Ben Shapiro. Well, let me add to that. Facts lead to feelings, but feelings are not facts. When someone gives a prophecy, we ask first, does it add or subtract from God's word? Second, does it contradict it? Three, does it make me love Jesus more? We don't ask first, how does this make me feel? And that is where so much discernment falls, falls away. John right here, he couldn't say it more bluntly. They're lying about God. And some, I want to uh, clear up something real quick here before I go into the body of this sermon. We talk about the three witnesses. Verse 7 in translations are going to look a little differently if you have a KJV or a NKJV, New King James Version or King James Version, than all other translations. This in church history is called the Kama Johanian. Um, I don't know if all of these are given names. That'd be weird to me. It's called a textual variant. I'm just going to do some brief teaching here on, on the different Bible translations. The New King James and the King James Version, they're translating from a set amount and a set um, static structure of manuscripts. It's called the Texas Receptus, or TR for short. They don't allow new findings to go into that. All other translations, NIV, ESV, NASB, they're going to allow any kind of new manuscripts that are found. By new, I mean they're found. They're older manuscripts that have been discovered. They are going to then influence the way they translate different things. And in the vast majority of old, the oldest manuscripts, you don't find the longer half to verse 7. Verse 7, in, in a many of your, in, if you have a KJV, is going to read like this. For there are three that bear witness record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. In all other translations, it reads something like this. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. As much as I actually kind of like the former with the KJV, with the symmetry of heavenly and earth, earthly witnesses, unfortunately, it's just not found in the earlier manuscripts. It's a great verse, too, about the Trinity, but, it's not the, we, but we don't need it to, to prove the Trinity. The baptism of Jesus Christ proves the Trinity. But we are given 
We are given the testimony from John, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. We call this the and John. We call this the Gospels. But we have three other gospel writers: the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Verse eight: the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for there is a testimony of God, and He is born concerning His Son. So these are the three that testify the water, the blood, and the spirit. We're going to start with the water today. The water is the more difficult one to figure out what John means by the water. In fact, most of 1 John is somewhat difficult to understand because it's kind of a conversation where you only get one side of it. John is writing in response to false teaching of his day. We know this in history. We know this through um, the writings of Arrhenius on his book Against Heresy. And we also know it, know it from Eupibius' ecclesiastical history that there were Gnostics of John's time who were teaching that Jesus was not God when he was born. It was not wreathed in flesh the Godhead sees. No, they believed that Jesus was just a man like any other man. That he lived a good life, but at his baptism... God then put the Spirit of Christ on him, and he became God. We don't maybe see this so much anymore. What we see more is what, we, what is in history called the Gnostic, is called the Kenosis heresy. The Kenosis heresy is kind of the inverse of this, which is that Jesus was God forever, the Son of God, but when he came to earth, he lost his divinity and then gain his divinity back after the resurrection. This is also heresy because God is ne- Jesus Christ is never divided. He is always God, always the eternal son of God. So the same thing also applies to this. You'll see the kenosis in many different people's teaching is the same kind of heresy. So the water, the water is the harder one to understand. Um, the blood and the spirit most people agree what that is, the blood of Christ, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and of course the Holy, Holy Spirit for the Spirit. It's the waters we're not sure about. John doesn't tell us either what the water is. I believe this was very clear to his readers, but I think what's important for us is that we understand the, the basic meaning of it, is that Jesus really lived, he really died, and he was really resurrected. These events are not just stories that make us feel happy, but they really happened. With that said, what are the waters? I'm not just going to sidestep what people think the waters are. Um, some think the water and the blood came from Jesus' side. The water he's talking about is the water and blood that came from Jesus' side when he was pierced after he died. Water and blood flow out. John, in his gospel, is the one who makes a point of this, and he says, the one who saw this, his testimony is true. He's talking about himself. I really saw this, guys. This is crazy. Blood and water came from his side. John is the one who records it, and after all, all this, he points, uh, he points to this and said he wrote that. He who wrote this has borne witness. His testimony is true. Others think the water refers to the ambionic fluid Christ was in during his birth. We have the same kind of terms today in, in, in American English. We talk about a woman's water breaking. So others would say, okay, Jesus came for, by, by water. And he came literally by the water um, from his mother, uh, Mother Mary. We still, once again, we still use this, uh, we use the phrase, a woman's water breaks. Still others believe it to be the sacraments of communion. Martin Luther was a proponent of this, that the body of Christ being the living water, and of course his blood as well. 
There are others who believe it is the Old Testament sacrifices that testify of Jesus Christ, the blood to atone sins. We talked about the Day of Atonement today in Sunday school. And then the water that cleanses. I think all of those really, all of those fit in a way. I don't think they are specifically correct, but they are correct in a general way because they all, testi- they all testify that Jesus Christ is the Christ and the Son of God. But I think that there is one use of water in the New Testament that really fulfills everything John is talking of here, of Jesus Christ being the Savior, being the Son of God, and being, and being the Christ. And that is Christ baptism. I think that's all, all those were right in the indirect sense, but I think the most direct meaning is that it is the water of Christ's baptism. The, biggest, the big heresy of John's day, once again, is, was, was, was that of Sentheris and his teachings that Jesus was a good man, but at his baptism became the Son of God. And that's why in 1 John, it's somewhat hard to understand because it's one side of the conversation. In here, he talks about the water testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ from birth. Matthew, Mark, Luke all describe the baptism of Christ in its most clear reference to the Trinity. God the Father speaking, God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and God the Son being immersed in water. This testifies that Jesus is the Christ. As God the Father says, this is my Son, it testifies specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. When the Holy Spirit descends on him, he is anointed. He is Christ, the anointed one. In verse 5 of chapter 5 of 1 John, who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The water of his baptism testifies this to us. When we read in the Gospels of his baptism, it testifies to us that God the Father said, this is my Son. This is the assurance we have. The water of the baptism testifies to this. In John's gospel, he doesn't tell about the baptism itself, but John's testimony of the event. That John said, this, that John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the testimony of God during his baptism. Baptism today, when we do water baptism, we have this back here where Sarah does the drumming. It's not a trap door. So no worries, Sarah, you won't fall in. But when we have baptisms today, the water still testifies about Jesus Christ. Because when we put somebody into the water, we take them out of the water, we have them give their testimony. And their testimony, they're not the main person. When we go over your testimony, when we do our baptism, I say, don't make your testimony all about you. Because it's not about you. It's what you've seen you've heard. When I go to court and I have to testify... They don't care about where I grew up and all these things of what I ate in the, during breakfast. They want to know what I've seen and heard about the event in question. So we have people give their testimonies and they say of the, of the kindness of God in their life, of the love that is greater than their sin. The water still testifies that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. In Romans 6, 3-5, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like this. So when you were baptized, you gave your testimony of the goodness of Christ, and then myself or another pastor dunked you into the water. 
that was symbolizing that you died to yourself. That who you were no longer exists. I remember this was such a huge thing for me because I grew up in a, in a church in which I was baptized when I was so much younger and not through immersion. So I, I put off being baptized through immersion, being put under the water for so long. But when I did, it was one of the most significant moments of my life because I was publicly declaring, I have died and now I live with Christ. As I went under the water, I identified with the sufferings and the death of Christ. And when I rose out of the water, I identified with his resurrection. Because the water testifies. You don't want to believe me? Believe the water. When were you baptized in water? Maybe you haven't been baptized in water yet. I would love to talk with you. I'd love to get another baptism service going. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Anointed One. This is the true testimony. Here's the second one. Like I said, with the blood and the Spirit, there's really not a lot of disagreement in this amongst theologians and church historians. The blood is the blood of Christ. It's the death of Christ. John said the blood testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. You know, we used to talk about the blood all the time in churches. We used to sing songs about the blood. We'd say that there's power in the blood. We'd ask each other, are you washed in the blood? Nothing but the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's side. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. This wasn't just Pentecostal churches. It was Lutheran churches. It was Methodist churches, Baptist churches, and so much more. Churches used to be unashamed of the blood. And then we became obsessed with boasting about numbers and conferences, showing up on talk shows. You don't get invited to Oprah's Super Soul Sunday if you talk about the blood too much. You don't get invited to Dr. Phil if you talk about the blood too much. You've got to keep that down. In fact, people will say, stop talking about the blood. It's Christianese. And people will be freaked out about it. They'll think we're a bloody religion. Well, we are a bloody religion. We know that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we want a jeweled cross. We want a golden cross. But instead, it's a rough cross. It is a bloody cross. The only jewels on it are the rubies of the blood of Christ. And yes, this weirds people out. You know, early Christians in the first century... They were called what the Roman equivalent of a vampire was because they would talk about drinking the blood of Christ. And people knew the difference and they just didn't care because if they want to malign you, they're going to malign you. If people want to speak against you, they're going to speak against you. They'll figure out some reason and you're not going to be able to stop them. So you should say what you think in your heart is right anyway. It is an old rugged cross and I cling to it because one day I will exchange it for a crown. This morning when I was praying, I I, I said something. I haven't heard in a lot of prayers for a long time. I pleaded the blood of Christ over what we were doing. That's something we used to say a lot in churches. We we don't do it so much anymore because once again, we don't want to speak Christianese or weird people out. Well, we don't care because we glory in the sacrifice of our son. We are not ashamed of his suffering. We're not ashamed of God's son's suffering. Pleading the blood of Christ. Some people use it as a magic phrase, and that is wrong. 
If you think you get some special power or God has to do something he wasn't otherwise inclined to do because you plead the blood of Christ and you said the right words, then no, you shouldn't say that. But you know what happens when we say we are pleading the blood of Christ? I'm saying it's not on my merit. It's not because I'm the pastor of this church. It's not because I am holy in and of myself or righteous in and of myself or because I occupy some privileged position. No, I plead the blood of Christ because I'm asking God, do this for the sake of your son. In Moldova, these two brothers heard about this island in which the owner of this island had slaves, and he was such a wicked man, he wouldn't even let missionaries go to it. As far as he was concerned, his slaves could literally go to hell. And they were crushed inside, and he wouldn't let any missionaries go there. So they, so they said to themselves, you know what we'll do? We'll go on the next slave ship, and we'll present ourselves as slaves, and we will live, and we will die working the fields so that we can share the love of Jesus Christ. It's not exactly how it turned out, but that was their intention of their heart. And their family members knew this. And as they were sailing away with their family members in tears, thinking that this is the last time we're ever seeing these guys again, they linked arms and said, may the lamb who was slain receive the full reward for his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the full reward for his suffering. This is why we send missionaries out. This is why we choose to preach the blood of Christ to an unbelieving world who, if they do not accept it, will turn on us in rage because may the Lamb who is slain, may the blood of Christ do its work. It testifies. This is pleading the blood of Christ. Leonard Ravenhill said, Paul never glamorized the gospel. It's not success, it's sacrifice. It's not a glamorous gospel, but a bloody gospel, a gory gospel, a sacrificial gospel. Five minutes inside of eternity, and we'll wish we had sacrificed more, wept more, bled more, grieved more, loved more, and prayed more, and given more. There is so much to talk about the blood of Christ in the Bible. I could keep you here all day. I'm not going to. Good for you. Um, But I want to talk about just two from another book of John the book of Revelation. John wrote Revelation as well. Two verses about the blood. In chapter one, so just in his introduction of the book of Revelation, he says this, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The blood testifies that he frees us from our sins. Then in chapter 12, verse 11, a very common verse, and they conquered him, speaking of the dragon, speaking of the Antichrist, uh, speaking of the dragon, the devil, and they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimonies, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Another way of saying it, may the lamb who is slain have the full reward for his suffering. The blood testifies First and foremost, the blood of Jesus Christ tells us that he is the son of the living God, the only one whose blood can satisfy the debt you and I owe to God, and we owe a great debt from our sin. We sometimes minimize that as though it was mistakes or we're just having a hard time processing something. No, we owe a great debt to God, and even our own blood cannot cover over that debt. It's why hell is eternal, but the blood of Christ testifies he is the son of the living god he is god the son he is the christ 
That's what it says about Christ, and that's chief. But the blood has a testimony about you. You have, the, the testimony is, the testimony concerning you is the good, the bad, and the ugly. No, I'm not talking about a spaghetti western. The bad is this. Without it, you have the penalty of sin that you must pay. This is the ugly. Your sin, and I don't care if you grew up in a convent or a bordello, is so bad, it takes the blood of Christ himself, the blood of God himself, to cover over it. This is why people don't want to talk about the blood. Because the blood doesn't say a very good thing about me. You don't know me, I know. I I know you don't know all about me. Let me say that. You didn't grow up with me. I remember there was one time in high school, my brother's like, I think people have too high of an opinion of you. I'm like, thanks a lot, Brent. I was like, what opinion do they have of me? But you don't know me. You don't know all my struggles. But God does. He knows all of them. And my sin, I don't, care if it, I don't care if you're a serial killer or if you say a couple white lies in your life. Your sin is so ugly, it's so terrible that it takes the blood of Christ himself, of God himself to cover over it and cleanse it. But this is the good, is that it is given freely. It may cost God more than we could ever imagine, but it is free. It is free to all who would come. It is free to you. It is free to me. He purchases you with his blood. He frees you from the slavery of sin. Here is the third testimony. The third witness. It is the Spirit. And the Spirit is testifying and still testifying. Primarily through his word, but his Spirit also speaks to us through his, in his word as well. That's what we are praying for today for Ken. We are praying he had heard the word. Now we're praying for the Holy Spirit to speak to him. The Spirit testifies. I can't tell you how many people, like I was like witnessing to, I had awesome arguments, and they were just like a stone wall. They didn't even agree with me. Yes, everything you say is right, I'm wrong, I still don't want Jesus. But how, how come I have all the spiritual laws and everything? I, you know, I don't care. Other people, they're like, I, I don't know what's going on, but I'm loving Jesus now. I don't know what happened in my life. I remember I, I had this boss when I was working at Target, and I got out of work a couple times because I got to witness to him, which was a really cool thing to have happen. By the way, do you, you guys notice that you're our missionaries into this place? In Talgona, Emmitsburg, Corwith, and all the places that you might be from, you're our missionaries we're sending out. And you have access like I don't. Like I, never, like, I remember hearing pastors say that, and I'm like, whatever, you get to tell people about Jesus all the time. And then I was in a position in my life in which I wasn't a pastor anymore, working at Target, and I am ministering more than when I was a pastor. When I was a youth pastor, it was crazy. And I didn't even ask for it. I didn't tell people, I'm a pastor, let me tell you about Jesus. People are like stopping me and talking to me about these things because, they, because I lived my faith. And it came out in what I said. It came out in these things. I didn't shy away. I lived boldly for the Lord, and that, that's you. So you have this moment to speak into people's life. So I'm speaking to my, my boss, and I'm telling him about these things, and he's agreeing with some things, he's disagreeing with others. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to him one day, he's like, I don't know what's happening in my life. I feel like I'm at the edge of a cliff, and I want to jump, because I know that's where the Lord is. And he started loving the Lord he once ignored and, and hating the sin he once loved. The Spirit is speaking. The Spirit is testifying. He is testifying that Jesus Christ, he is the one your heart longs for. He is the one who will satisfy the longings of your heart that you didn't even know about. 
there was this French atheist. And he had grown up in an atheist house, and he had, he had compiled this list. And he said, this is the book that really gets me, that really knows me. And he'd write down different quotes and things that he really liked. And then one day, he was at the, he was at the end of his limit. He was just going through depression, and he figured, I'm just going to kill myself today. And before he killed himself, he started looking through, he was going to look through the book of the book that gets him. And while he was making his plans, his wife comes home and she's like, this is weird. I got this Bible while I was in the supermarket. I'm going to throw it away. He's like, no, let me take a look at it. He started reading and tears ran down his face. The book that really got him didn't get him at all. He's like, this is the book that gets me. This is the book who knows what I am. The spirit still speaks. There's an antichrist spirit. John has already warned us about this. It's a spirit that wants to rival Christ, and it contradicts the spirit's testimony. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before. It's not simply saying these words, but believing them, knowing them, living them. That our very spirit says Jesus is Lord. In Galatians 4, 6, Paul the Apostle will tell us that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Do you have eternal life? If you have the spirit of the son, you do. Verses 11, 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I think it's a really sad thing when you see pastors come on national TV and they won't say that part right there. Do you believe that people need to know Jesus in order to, to be saved to go to heaven? I could give you a few names of very famous pastors who are like, I don't know. I thought you were speaking of the Spirit of God. I thought you had the Spirit in your heart that says, Abba, Father. What do you mean you don't know? What do you mean you want to go through this whole thing of not explaining the answer? Why don't you just say, He's the Son of God. There's no other way. You don't have eternal life without Him. Whatever you want to call it, whatever ways you want to, people try to convolute that, to try to make it so complicated. Well, maybe if this person has a good, you know, whatever, they're showing fruit. The first fruit is that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that eternal life is found in Him and in no place else. Worship team, would you come up at this time? So that's my question to you today. Do you have eternal life? Do you have the Son? Second thing I want to encourage you with, you have the testimony of the scripture. You have the testimony of the spirit, the blood, and the spirit. The spirit, the blood, and the water. Sorry, the spirit, the blood, and the water. So let me ask you this. If that is for you, who can be against you? You are, you are exposed to so many lies in your week. You get on your phone, go to Facebook, go to Twitter, you're exposed to lies. But if God be for us, who can be against us? He can keep us safe in the palm of his hands if we cling to his truth. So here's my challenge for you today. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. This testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit is yours. So be encouraged. Stand firm in the faith. 
When all things are trying to attack, trying to make the ground you are shaking, stand on the firm rock of ages. Plead the water, plead the blood, plead the spirit. Last, if you do not know the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation to have the Son. The worship team is going to lead us in our final song. It's our moment to reflect on God's word today. Maybe today, all, all of this is for you is just encouragement. As you're, as you're praising, as you're worshiping, as you're praying, you're just going to be filled with the love of Jesus Christ. And, and you're going to be, this is just going to be just an awesome time for you. Maybe for others, you need to remind yourself, it's not you, it's God that keeps you in God. The water, the blood, and the spirit. You know why we're all three of those, what they have in common? They don't come from you. They come from God. And we have that testimony to fall on. For others, maybe God is dealing with you on something I'm not even preaching about today. That's the work of the Holy Spirit too. And you're like, I don't even know why I'm feeling so convicted about this. Pastor Jason, what has not been preaching about it? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not me. Sometimes people are like, oh, you're preaching right to me. I really wasn't. I mean, I, I, I mainly preach to myself, and, I, and I, 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 I meditate on God's word until it hits me like a Mack truck, and then I present it to you. Because my prayer is, if this hits me like this, it should hit you like this. Would you please join us in our final song? And during this time, it's time to reflect on the message. To not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. To rejoice that our salvation is found in God's Son. That we have eternal life in Him. We remember our baptism or look forward to a baptism in which we were saying, I died to myself and I'm now alive in Christ. Plead the blood of Christ over a situation, for the testimony of the blood is true. And then entrust. Here's a big thing. Sometimes we pray, and we don't pray with hope, but we pray with fear. It's because we don't trust the Holy Spirit to take care of the situation. Now earnestly, passionately pray over the same thing, over and over and over, absolutely. But also trust that you can release this into God's care and control, and He truly cares more about it than you do. Worship team, thank you very much.